Hey, thanks for checking out the podcast. On this episode, I sat down with Gary Sanders, who is the project manager for the Crooked River Watershed Council and also happens to be a buddy of mine. We talked about his background in fisheries, working in Oregon, Michigan, Wyoming, coming up through school, and uh, his background in fishing and kind of some of the projects that they're working on currently with the Crooked River Watershed Council and Opal Springs in particular, which I think is of interest to anyone fishing in Central Oregon. If you want to check out the Watershed Council, the website is crwc.info. Again, that's www.crwc.info. And hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. All right, I'm sitting here with Gary Sanders, a friend of mine and a fish biologist for the Crooked River Watershed Council. And we are uh, on the Oregon coast here, just within earshot of the surf and enjoying some Guinness beers here on St. Patrick's Day weekend. And uh, no steelhead yet, but having a good time over here. Uh, Gary, thanks for sitting down here. Of course, Ed. (laughs) great to be here thank you for having me yeah um so i i like to start kind of hearing about your path toward you know just being where you're at now and being here and i know you did undergrad at uh some some dirty little school in western massachusetts but let's hear about it yeah uh so so i would say my path is uh fairly non-traditional for people that end up in the the field i am in um I uh, I grew up in California and uh, went to college in Western Massachusetts at a small liberal arts school. Uh, and William, the, so the decision, Williams College being a rival of the college <laughs> I went to, so that's to explain the joke here. But going, did you were you thinking about the career, like thinking about science? biology fish biology before you went to undergrad or uh so i was um i was fairly certain i would be involved in a field science as a career but in i high was school yeah wow. yes okay. so i um while in high school i did uh two summer internships at a biotechnology company oh, okay. in california i had a uh very good interest in biology, uh, ecology, and I uh, did two summers in a biotech company and realized lab biology is not for me. Yeah. And uh, it was a good learning experience. And then so I, when I went to college, I kind of thought I will be, I'm very interested in sort of field biology, field ecology. Um, then from there, it was sort of where am I going to end up? I have no clue. Yeah. And interestingly even you know i finished college and it was sort of like i have no plan other than i'm going to move out to the western u.s to a spot where i want to be and then we'll see how things shake out um so 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 within school so what did you you, did you major in um, geology so i majored in geology uh i sort of reached a point in school where i had three choices uh, major in geology, major in biology, or major in economics. And I had I, <laughs> I had uh, several friends who were like major in economics, and and I and I I honestly I thought about double majoring and ended up 
really enjoying the geology program at Williams and uh, I really felt like it was a good fit for me. I never really felt like I was going to go on to a graduate degree in geology and I never felt like uh, a graduate degree or PhD was going to be like my path, but I felt like the undergraduate degree was a really good fit and then and then see how things shake out cool and then you were talking about moving out west yeah obviously grew up in california then yep across the country for undergrad and then which i'm familiar with growing up in massachusetts and going to amherst college right near william but then what 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 was it that Put so you in Wyoming. So um, moved to Wyoming after college. So I had a, a a good buddy that I grew up with, who his aunt and uncle lived in Jackson, Wyoming, and basically they had. Uh, I I went out to Jackson a couple times while in high school and college, and uh, got to know his aunt and uncle. And they both were. They they said, uh, if you want to move out here, we'll rent you a room in our basement. For a couple hundred bucks a month to get in your Jackson. feet, yeah, to okay. get your feet underneath you, and so I, uh, I literally packed up my stuff from Williams College in, Ma- in Massachusetts into my 1989 Acura Integra, and my dad rented, my mom and dad rented a uh, minivan, rental minivan, and my dad and I caravaned across the United States from Massachusetts to Wyoming, and moved into. A basement rental in a house of someone we knew uh, for a few hundred dollars a month and that was my post-college graduate experience. <laughs> Intro yes. to the real world. Yes. And my first job was working at a motel for $10.50 an hour. Nice. And uh, one of the best jobs I ever had. <laughs> it was, uh, I worked four days on and then had three days off to explore Western Wyoming. And you were all into fishing at this point yeah. already, yeah. And I made no friends. <laughs> and I camped out of my car and backpacked and fished for about four months after I moved there. And you'd been, so backing up a little bit, your dad fly fished. Yep. So, so you, my, were, you were introduced to fly fishing right off the bat. So I first started fishing when I was about five. And... Uh, and then as I grew up, I didn't fish a ton, but my dad and I would go out and bait fish. And then about when I was 12 or 13, my dad introduced me to fly fishing. My dad uh, fly fished. Uh, my dad grew up in Missouri, and he grew up uh, fishing in the Ozarks. And uh, then he got into fly fishing, and... He, through his educational education experience, he lived in uh, Seattle, and he ended up fly fishing and fishing in throughout the kind of the Pacific Northwest. He got me into fly fishing about when I was 12, 13, started fly fishing, started fly tying, and then kind of around 13, 14 was when I kind of fell into fly fishing and was like, oh, this is, this is kind of where I want to be. Yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is great, and I, I get to explore new places and have like a way to kind of feel fulfilled right um yeah cool yeah, yeah. And that's wyoming's a good fit for <laughs> yeah so when i moved to wyoming it was like I, I 
literally didn't really meet another person for about three to four months and I felt fine and uh, explored. I pretty much worked my way through every major tributary to the Snake River that it flows in uh, from Jackson northward. Right. Um, And uh, it was great. And it was great. And then uh, I kind of felt like Okay, I feel like a bit of a hermit. So yeah. <laughs> let's uh, let's meet some people. Yeah, let's meet some people. Let's figure out how we can uh, work from here. So you were so you at this point where you were thinking fish biology was yeah. Down the road, you know, I was like, I, I kind of was like, okay, I have a undergraduate degree. Where am I going to go from here? And then about October or so after I moved there, I actually. Um, I went down to the local Wyoming Game and Fish office and was like, "Hey, I'm I'm you know I'm really interested in in fish, fisheries, rivers, and I have a degree in geology. You know, is there anything I can do?" And I really wasn't expecting much. And uh, the local Wyoming Game and Fish office was very accommodating, and and they essentially were like, "We we're looking for you know we we hire fisheries technicians, seasonal technicians every year." jobs open up in january apply and i applied and i i got a job and i oh, tell nice. people to this day um a lot of people i i cross path with that are like undergraduates if you are interested in fisheries the wyoming game and fish uh seasonal fish tech program is great they take yeah. applicants every january and, it, and you get a three to six month position and you get to meet people and it, it, you get great field experience. And so I kind of lucked into a job in Jackson. And so I was hired the following uh, June I started and I worked through November. And, uh, and what, um, what was that work? What were you doing? Oh, so the first week I started, I had to go out and um, they in Jackson, they have a, uh, a, a weir that is on a spawning tributary for Snake River Cutthroat. And I would go out to this weir where they have blocked off a spawning tributary with uh, an aluminum aluminum pieces that create a weir. So the fish have to swim up this weir and it forces them to go into a uh, essentially a trap, a box. And I would go out every day and measure the fish, how long they were, how heavy they were, and if they were male or female. And that was that was within the first week of me starting. And for someone who fly fishes yeah. and is trying to catch those fish <laughs> eleven months out of the year, yeah. it is a a dream to go out and go. Oh, here are the fish that I've been trying to catch all year long, and and I would go home to my my roommates who were fly fishing and be like. Yeah, so today we saw six fish over 16 inches, and three were males, and six were females. Um, um, so it was a great job, and I, I literally started in June, and they had me doing that. And we did electro fishing of tributaries of the snake. We did gill net sets of high mountain lakes. I was able to backpack into remote lakes and do uh, gill net assessments of fish populations. I helped with the Forest Service. All uh, within that first summer? Or was oh, that... all within oh, wow. six months. That's and awesome. then um, late in the season, I helped out with gill netting on Jackson Lake for uh, trophy lake trout. Yeah. So Jackson Lake has um, their non-native lake trout. They've been introduced. Uh, and the, the Wyoming Game and Fish Department has to do assessments of the, the trophy spawners. 
So we would go out at night and set gill nets where they were spawning and we would put the gill nets out and then an hour later pull the gill nets and see what fish were in them. And we had lake trout up to 20 plus pounds. Um, and for uh, someone who is sort of a fisherman and new to the science side of it, when you're pulling in fish that are 20, 25 pounds tangled yeah. up in a gill net at <laughs> in night, the dark, in, right? yeah, <laughs> in the dark with a headlamp on, uh, it is, it's a new and fun experience. Yeah, um, and sure. it puts a lot of things into perspective about sort of the management side of things, the angler side of things. Um, but it was a great job, great field experience. I, I still to this day, I talk to my boss who was there. Uh, he's still there and I talk to him uh, you know, once a year, once every six months and kind of touch base. And um, I tell a lot of people at the, that is great work experience that you can't get a lot of other yeah. places. Pretty crazy broad experience. Like, oh. like I was, when you were saying you, you know, you did the weir for right. tribs, fish coming yep. out of the main river and then high lake netting for surveys and then, you know, Jackson Lake. And it's just a lot of different, like really different types of Yep. Uh, fisheries to be looking at. It's yep. And it's something where if you if you want to go into that as a career path, it sets you up with a lot of different experience of different technique, field techniques, uh, and a lot of experience that you kind of crosses different, different regions too. So, um, you know, different regions of the US and depending on the fisheries kind of use different field methods. And what I learned there was a wealth of experience in like a five month window right. that it would be hard to get other places. Yeah, just so many different kind, yeah. kinds of, you know, Yep, and then I it. ended up, um, so I, I kind of took a summer off from that and uh, enjoyed living in Western Wyoming. And then I ended up working for Wyoming Game and Fish again the next summer in uh, out of Cody, Wyoming. And that job was specifically focused on backcountry habitat and, and fish population assessments upstream of Yellowstone Lake. So we would, um, I had a five month position. It started in May and ended in the uh, end of September. And in that five month position, we did four backcountry trips into the headwaters of the Yellowstone where we thoroughfare yeah the yeah. thoroughfare creek area so we were we were horse packed in by um, uh, guides uh, in in one case we took a forest service forest service pack string in the other case it was a private guide but we would get horse packed in and then we would stay for eight days and then we would get horse packed back out and in those eight days we would we would do habitat assessments and fish population surveys with backpack electroshockers. So basically you have a, a car battery uh, hooked up to wires that go into the stream and we're, we're shocking for fish and doing habitat assessments. And our job was to assess every named perennially flowing tributary into the thoroughfare upstream of a certain point. So we would just hike up a stream it would have no trail along it we would just hike up it and so we just would, for anyone not familiar this is like 
as I understand it, like one of the two most remote parts is, of the lower 48, depending on the definition, it's like the, you yes. know, like the Frank Church in central yes. Idaho or the thoroughfare of Yellowstone so, are sort of like the two yeah. most remote, furthest from roads. Yes. Wild so the, country. So the, really wild country, grizzly country. Oh, yeah. So yeah. The, the heart of the thoroughfare, if you're measuring remoteness by distance to a road, whether that's paved, two-track, BLM, private, Jeep trail, the thoroughfare is the, is the longest distance from anywhere to a road. And so when we were into the thoroughfare, the heart of the thoroughfare, we were 19 or 20 miles as the crow flies from a road. So, and that could be hiking, that could be 24 miles or you know 22 yeah. miles. So basically like our first trip in in June, we horse packed in 26 miles, I think, from the west side. Um, part of it through snow, part of it on horse, I remember being on horseback, crossing the thoroughfare and the water, the horse, the horse I was on was swimming and the water's up to the your your knees on the horse and uh and you get in there and uh you're you're miles from anywhere and um so you set up camp and then you start hiking and you hike up these streams that literally have no trails along them and every one mile you do a habitat assessment so you you look for uh the number of pools the number of large wood the um, how wide is the stream? How deep is the stream? And then, then you you do an assessment for fish. And basically, our protocol was we would assess for fish until we had two reaches in consecutive that didn't have any fish. Okay. So we would get six miles up these tributaries, have no fish, and then we would go to the next one, and we would get one fish, and we'd have to keep going. Yeah. And <laughs> And we would do that for days on end. And uh, it was great. It was exhausting. It was some of the hardest work I've ever done. But it was areas that probably, we, we probably went to areas that literally less than 100 people have ever Maybe seen. Maybe have never been, no. ne had never been shocked before that? No, had there, there, had, nev there had never been a systematic assessment of that area before we wow. went there. That's crazy. And so we, we were seeing areas that, that honestly never, had never had a systematic habitat and population assessment done. And we were seeing things that we actually didn't know ecologically could occur. So we were on the bank watching fish that migrated up from Yellowstone Lake that were spawning. So fish that are 18 to 24 inches long spawning. And then we were watching what we called sneaker males. So they were river fish that were resident, resident yeah. river fish that were yeah. six to 12 inches. And they would sneak out and try and mate with the females at the same time as lake male fish are. And that had been documented in salmon, like jack salmon. Yeah, and steelhead. And, and steelhead. Resident rainbow. Right, trout. resident yeah. rainbow. Yeah, yeah. It had never been documented in cutthroat. cutthroat. Oh, wow. And we were, I was laying on the bank watching it, and my, my boss, and this is 2005, my boss is trying to record it with like a camcorder <laughs> um, of this happening, going, this has never been documented with cutthroat, cutthroat before. Yeah. Um, so it was 
I mean, we were out there and just, it was for someone who had kind of come out of school with not a like clear cut career path. Yeah. That was career forming for right, me. Right. And, uh, and some of the coolest stuff was we got packed in by private, uh, you know, guides. And so they would leave us for eight days. And when they would come back, they would bring us um, a case of cores <laughs> and cold steak and steaks. And like for, after, oh yeah, first night. Yeah. yeah. So like after eight days, having been in the backcountry, you know, you start out with steaks, and then you go to like what has been frozen, and then by like day five, you're on dry soups. Yeah. And then they would come in mountain at like, house. oh yeah, mountain house. And then they would come in at like day nine with uh, steaks and beer. And uh, it was the end of the trip fine experience. Dining. Yeah, yeah, fine dining. <laughs> throw them in the creek, yeah. throw the Coors in the creek, getting them cold. And it's like then a Coors commercial. Oh, straight up, straight up. And then, so I, I feel like. Gary can relate to this, cool. getting carried away, talking about Wyoming, having both of us live there. But at some point, obviously, you end up in Oregon. So yeah, you, you, you got some experience working in um, the field in Wyoming. Yep, and got a you know developed uh, you know career right. You have career goals or whatever. Yes. So, yeah. So yep. so then yep. you understand what you want to do. Right. You go back to school in Michigan. Yep. So to, um, to so I you know you kind of figure out what you're interested in and that that those two positions I kind of felt like okay this this is one I want to stick with. So I ended up kind of looking for positions in the Western U.S. and Michigan. My my girlfriend at the time, now wife was from Michigan, so it was kind of like Western U.S. or Michigan. Uh, looked at a position at University of Idaho, uh, kind of, you know, scouted around, and then um, ended up at a position in Michigan, on the west side of Michigan at Grand Valley State University um, out of uh, Allendale, Michigan. And I actually did graduate work in, in the Big Lakes, so in Lake Huron was where my graduate work focused, and I did a lot of work kind of on food web ecology in in Lake Huron and it was really interesting and for, like for me professionally it was something where I had a lot of stream and river experience but I didn't have a lot of like big lake work so yeah. I learned a lot about limnology um, kind of algae a lot of stuff that you it is not too glamorous and exciting to fly fishermen. Oh, no. <laughs> but, it's but it's really, uh, from a professional perspective, it's, it's, it's really fruitful. And uh, so I did, my, my master's thesis was on food web ecology in Lake Huron. And um, I really enjoyed it, really enjoyed Michigan. Uh, what was very interesting about Michigan is sort of the same issues that Michigan sees are the same issues that we see in the Pacific Northwest. It's just sort of like a hundred years accelerated. So Michigan went through logging, the same stream issues, the same ecology issues. It just, they started a hundred years before what happened in the Pacific Northwest. And so- So they're, they're working on like trout impacts? Yes, so like Would that be trout true? impact from like splash dams, yeah. uh, over harvest of large wood, 
removing all large wood stream from streams, um, you know, and what the effects are on those stream systems after you remove all the large wood, uh, non-point source issues, so like roads, agriculture, timber harvest. Yeah. And so now in the Pacific Northwest, we, we have the same issues, but in Michigan, they started in the early 1800s, and in the Pacific Northwest, they started in the early 1900s. Right, yeah. So um, that was kind of interesting, and I, I learned a tremendous amount in Michigan. Um, and I, to this day, Grand Valley State is an awesome academic institution, undergrad, graduate, I highly recommend it. Um, and, and so my wife and I went back there, her family was back there. Uh, we always knew we wanted to get back out west. So I finished up there and then I actually ended up getting a job with Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. So just randomly? I mean, I started applying to jobs. To I mean, how many, how many jobs? I applied for 50 plus jobs out yeah. of graduate school. Um, ended up getting a job with Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife in La Grande, kind of the northeast corner of Oregon, yeah. focused on habitat restoration. And it was a great fit. Um, and I moved out from Michigan and started right up there and started working on habitat restoration. And then from there, I was with ODFW for about a year. And then I took a position with the Crooked River Watershed Council down in Central Oregon, uh, where I work on the Crooked River, a tributary to, to the Deschutes. And I've now been with the Watershed Council for, I just passed my nine year anniversary. So I've been here nine years as a project manager with the Watershed Council. Nice, with the Watershed Council. That's yep. what brought you to Central Oregon and you've been continued with. Mm -hmm. Watershed Council, cool. I feel, I feel like we've been talking a lot about Wyoming and right. <laughs> Yellowstone. Yeah, so now we're in Central Oregon, right? And finally yeah. talking about Oregon, but um, obviously, you know, we're in Oregon now, fishing the coast, but yep. Central Oregon where we both live and um, you work on the crooked and there are endless fascinating issues and problems going on with the crooked. Uh, one of the projects that I think is really cool that you guys are working on right now is the Opal Springs Passage Dam. Is it, there's a dam down there, right? So, yep. so uh, Opal Springs is a uh, hydroelectric facility. It is owned by Deschutes Valley Water District. They are a, uh, a special district in Oregon. They supply municipal water to uh, Madras, Culver, and Metolius, kind of a, the northern end of the central Oregon region. And they own a hydroelectric facility that they installed, I believe it was 1983. It may have been 84, but I believe it was 83 when they started. And basically, they have always supplied water to those municipal areas and the water is pumped out of the crooked and the water originates from a set of springs. So these are artesian springs. The water is delicious. Uh, it's actually bottled by a couple bottled water companies. Um, and the water is pumped about 800 vertical feet out of the canyon and then supplied to those municipal areas. One of the uh, incredible things I've, I've learned through you uh, about that stretch of the crooked is to me I think of the crooked below Bowman Dam and you have the right. pale water and you're basically getting the water that comes in right that small river yep. maybe calling it a river is a stretch right and by the time it gets you know it swings below the highway 
we went down there and fished a few years back and you realize that a lot of volume has been added to the river and it it's cold and it's right. sort of confusing and you were saying how there are hundreds of cfs that's added to the river from maybe not hundreds of cfs but there's quite a bit of volume added to the river from springs down in that stretch of the yep. river sort of crooked river ranch before it enters billy chinook yep it's just yeah so between like uh really highway 97 geology. and lake billy chinook about uh, right around 2000 cfs of water is yeah. added so almost the entire flow of the metolius um and uh so above opal springs about a thousand cfs is added and then at or below opal springs another 1000 cfs is added and so the crooked goes from a river of like 200 cfs in the summer to 2200 cfs by the time it reaches billy chinook so at Opal Springs, at, at their hydroelectric facility, about 1,000 CFS has been added above the facility. They divert that roughly 1,000 CFS into a hydroelectric turbine that generates electricity. Yeah. They put the turbine in place to generate electricity, to generate revenue, to offset the cost of pumping the water out of the canyon. So it's a... They, they pump water out of the canyon. They pay, help pay for it by the generation of hydroelectric revenue. Right. Um, and then at or below the facility, about another 1,000 CFS comes in. And so the crooked starts as this, like you said, like yeah. kind of a small river. Yeah. You might even call it a stream. Yeah. And then by the time it reaches Billy Chinook, you're at like 2,200 CFS in the summertime. Um, so... The dam that's at Opal Springs is about 28 feet high, and it was a full fish passage barrier. So it was uh, essentially a pile of rocks with concrete on top, and it was about 28 feet high, and no fish could swim past it during most times of the year. Uh, so we've been working- historically, back 100 years before Billy Chinook, and, or before Pelton Round Butte, I guess, mm-hmm. not even 100 years back, there were there were anadromous fish that ran up oh, yeah. the Deschutes up through the Crooked, well up into so the Crooked had Pineville area. Yeah. So the Crooked before um, so the Crooked also has dams at uh, Bowman Dam on uh, which just forms Primeville Reservoir and then Ochoco Dam. Prior to all the dams, there were anadromous fish that made it all throughout their crooked yeah. so there were um there are accounts from uh some of the original fur trappers in the area of native american uh weirs at the confluence of the north and south fork crooked which is 50 plus miles east of prineville wow. which is yeah. above bowman Re- bowman dam above yeah. Prineville reservoir there were accounts of weirs for salmon and those were in the fall so those were uh those were spring Chinook that came up the Deschutes in the spring, and they would make it to the headwaters of the Crooked in the fall, uh, September, October. Um, I have personally heard from landowners whose family homesteaded 75 plus miles east of Prineville that he would go out with his grandmother and pitchfork steelhead out of their irrigation ditches. Yeah. Uh, this was prior to, to Bowman Dam. Okay. And so there, um, there, is, there are numerous accounts of anatomous fish 
making it up into the headwaters of the crooked. There are estimates that the crooked was biologically the largest producer of steelhead of any Deschutes tributary. Wow. So there are estimates of four to 5,000 adults coming out of the crooked historically. Right now, the total Deschutes run of wild fish is about 10,000 fish. So um, the crooked was a big producer of steelhead yeah. Yeah. and Chinook. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, we're talking hundreds of miles of anatomous fish habitat. Habitat, yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of the work that you guys do, I mean, you were talking about Opal Springs, so kind of getting back to what you were talking yes. about, passage at Opal yes. Springs being a big so, piece of that puzzle. Yep, the Watershed Council, uh, we have been working with a number of different partners since about 2007 on anadromous fish reintroduction into the crooked. Uh, I started in 2010, so I, I sort of have taken over partway through. But um, we, are, we are very interested in anadromous fish reintroduction. We're trying to help out a lot of partner agencies, private landowners. And so Opal Springs is sort of a project that fits into that because Opal Springs is at River Mile 1 on the Crooked. So if you don't have fish passage at River Mile 1, you will don't not have, have fish, fish passage fish. and you will not have anadromous fish. Yeah. And so... Um, so currently fish are caught, the, captured, and yes. passed over the dam. So currently there is a trap at yeah. the base of Opal Springs and the fish have to swim up a specific channel jump into the trap and if they jump into the trap they are lifted on into a truck hauled around opal springs and put above and then they can swim upstream the problem is is that the flows are generally fairly low there are river otters that congregate around there the fish have to find a specific path so we've been working with the water district since earlier than 2010 and the water Dis deschutes valley water district has been a great partner and we have been working with them on and a, and a number of other partners on trying to get fish passage the water district agreed to open up their FERC license earlier than they would have their license goes through 2033 okay. they agreed to open it up early in in order to implement fish passage and they have been a great partner so we helped them get grant funding to do so they opened up their FERC license and, and right now we are currently constructing a ladder with them. The ladder will allow for volitional fish passage. Fish can swim up the ladder and it is on track to be completed in 2019, probably by August or September. Wow. And at that point, fish will be able to swim past the 28 foot high dam and then they'll be able to swim up the crooked. There still is currently no fish passage at uh, Bowman Dam on Primeville Reservoir and Ochco Dam, but that opens up 126 miles. Of Opal Springs opens, opens up. up so, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Fish Passage at Opal Springs opens up 126 miles of fish passage. So right now there's a barrier at mile right, one, one, and you yes allow passage there. Yep. You open up 100 plus. Yep. And miles. we've we've worked since I started in 2010. We've worked at putting in fish passage and screens at a number of barriers upstream. So right. when I started into the Creek, I, yeah, Mackay Creek. Um, so when I started in 2010, there were 17 fish passage barriers 
in the crooked. And now we are down to, we've put in Fish Passage at 14. Wow. Opal Springs will be 15. We have grant funding in review right now for number 16. And we'll have one, maybe two barriers left. Yeah. And so basically in you know 10 plus years, we've opened up the entire Crooked to Fish Passage. As, as far as anadromous fish goes. Yeah. Um, which is... That, I mean, that's meaningful kind of, work. Yeah, yeah that, that is, awesome. um, you know, it, it, it's, it's something where you can, you can, you can look at that and go, that is, that's measurable. You yeah. can, that's meaningful. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. I, I, I'm sure people listening are familiar with the crooked and the yep. fishery over there and the um, red bands that are in there. But yep. I mean, the idea of, restoring steelhead obviously popular fish yeah so salmon i mean the the full suite of um of fish species that were were in the watershed originally that's awesome so for people that are fishermen i would say um we have had steelhead already up to bowman dam so there is a chance that you could catch now steelhead you know from bowman dam down We've had Chinook salmon all the way through Prineville. Um, we have had sort of the, the numbers have been bouncing around. They're, they're not large numbers, but we have had numbers of steelhead up to Prineville. We have the first spawning was documented in 2015 on Mackay Creek, uh, not far up from the mouth. So we've had natural spawning occurring. Um, and what I tell people is the projections are anywhere from one to 4,000 adult steelhead up in the crooked. Which is, that that comes from there is that enough suitable habitat, habitat. for that yes. many fish. Yes. If they can Make it get up over there. the dam, yes. there's enough habitat. Yes. And so when you think the about there's 10,000 give or take 10,000 wild uh, steelhead in the entire Lower Deschutes, we're looking at increasing the Lower Deschutes population by 10 to 40 percent. And so, you know, my goal, like I'm I'm 10 years into my job. I I, I love, you know, I I like my job. I want to stay here. My goal is my son's four years old. Um, my goal is that my son can fish for crooked river steelhead by the time he is ready to steelhead fish. So, um, you know, I'd love to see 500 adults in the next 10 years. Um, and we have a lot of work to do, but I feel like we're making measurable changes. There's a path. Right, there. there's yeah. a path, and yeah. I feel like we are, we are are making incremental change as we move along. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, it's awesome work. Appreciate yeah. the work. Yeah. Um, that's cool to hear about. Um, so, appreciate you going through all the career, you know, path and, yeah. and work you, you guys are working on now, and just kind of a more recreational final note. What. Can you think of something that would be a sort of bucket list fish that you're 
your organ kind of like something that you're wanting to get on we're over here trying for steelhead and they're tough <laughs> winter steelhead but so hopefully we'll somebody will find one but um just some just a fishery that you're really sure. you're really fascinated by interested in so i really uh get on i um i've only ever landed one steelhead and i've now hooked it was in a weir yeah right <laughs> uh he was he was in a uh, he was in a uh, in a net. Um, no, um, I I would really like to land a winter steelhead. I have not landed one yet. Um, beyond landing a winter steelhead, uh, in terms of Oregon fish, I would really like to land a John Day steelhead. Um, I spend some time over in the John Day, and the John Day is predominantly wild steelhead uh and uh i think to me the work and the also the habitat that john day steelhead uh live they're very similar to the john day is very similar watershed to the crooked so to me like landing desert yeah high desert yes it's it's a life history that's really interesting and it's very different so to me, landing a John Day steelhead would be sort of like a precursor to landing a Crooked River steelhead yeah. in like 15 years. Yeah. Um, so that is on my list is to uh, land a John Day steelhead. Cool. Well, uh, we had a good conversation here, Gary. Sorry to keep you so long. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Good talk with you. Nice As talking always. with you, Ed. All right. Thanks, Gary. podcast follow central oregon on the fly on instagram see you there